The first step of mediation is not negotiations. The first step of mediations is finding an agreement to talk. I'm convinced there should be more shuttle diplomacy, at least than what is being reported on at the moment. By all means, the military effort is valiant and is just, but diplomacy needs to accompany the military effort so that the military effort is ended as soon as possible. My guest today is Wolfgang Schwader, who is an adjunct professor at the Hattie School in Berlin and who was, until 2020, the head of the Human Dimension Department of the OSCE in Ukraine. Wolfgang has joined me on the show twice before, where we discussed the lead-up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as well as the ultimate reasons and consequences of Putin's decision to go to war. You can find links to those episodes in the show notes, where you can also hear a more extensive introduction to Wolfgang and his work. Today, however, he joins me to discuss possible ways out of this war. Wolfgang, thank you for joining me on The Voices of War again. Thank you very much for having me. We're recording this around lunchtime Ukraine time on the 17th of October, just for everybody listening to give some context. How would you assess the current situation in Ukraine? Well, the current situation is uh, dire for civilians who live in the war-affected areas, as it always is. Mm. The uh, situation is dire for the Russian army. Uh, the situation is dire for Russian conscripts. The situation is dire for civilians affected by the war, even in Kiev and uh, in other cities around Ukraine. And the situation is getting direr and direr for households in Europe affected by the fallout of the war. But that's um, mm. not all. What comes in addition to that is that there seems to be a spiral of escalation forming where attacks are getting fiercer and fiercer, losses are remaining at a very high level, not only on the Russian side, losses are also uh, very high on the Ukrainian side, as every Ukrainian soldier will tell you. Um, so I'm assessing the situation as, in simple terms, as not very good. In addition mm -hmm. to that, what I'm also not assessing as uh, very good is the intensity to at least come to a situation where the weapons remain silent and where some kind of solution can be sought uh, on a diplomatic political level. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and I guess that was uh, the main reason we were going to talk uh, today is uh, you have been a, a public proponent for finding a political and not necessarily a military solution to the invasion. So what does that look like from where you're sitting? Well, I have been a public proponent of minimizing the loss of life, and mm. I will always mm. remain that. What I do not want to do is what others have done, is to propose any type of solution. Because in the current climate, and with all the atrocities being committed, and with the war crimes being committed by the Russian Federation to the largest degree, mm. it is very hard to come from the outside to this conflict and to say, well, in my opinion, this and that would be a fair or a tenable solution. I think uh, Ukraine, at the end of the day, together with its allies, has to determine what solution could be regarded as fair and as, as acceptable. But I am a mm. proponent of a process that could lead sides and that could lead on the path 
to such a solution. In other words, I'm not saying what the situation should be, because that's really ultimately up to negotiations between Ukraine, the allies of Ukraine, the West and, and Russia. But what I'm saying is that there should be uh, real substantial efforts to enter into a process of finding such a solution. To be a little bit clearer, mm. uh, in theory, you do not come as a mediator with a result. You as a mediator, you will focus on the process, on the process that leads to, that eventually may or may not lead, but that could be the path towards a temporary or permanent solution. And let us not forget, when we look at mediation, the first step of mediation is not negotiations. The first step of mediations is finding an agreement to talk, is finding an agreement to sit on a table. Mm. To, sit, to be ready to sit on the same table mm. is not a prerequisite for mediation. It's the first result of mediation. And I do understand that attempts like that better remain confidential and better remain silent for the time being. But I, for one, when I look at what's going on, do not really see these attempts from the outside coming. Maybe they're happening. Maybe they're happening behind closed doors. That is entirely possible. But when I look at the rhetoric that prevails in all circles, I hope that the public rhetoric is actually silently and secretly accompanied by a policy that kind of seeks to enter onto this track of mediation that I'm talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. My only, I guess, my question on that is, I mean, Zelensky has publicly said, or he signed a decree stating that Ukraine will not negotiate while Putin is in charge. And given what they've experienced, what Ukraine has experienced, I think it's very difficult to blame him for that. However, it has almost put him in a bit of a corner. And I guess I wonder what is your take on that, given, given the, 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 the lines have been drawn very clearly. When the lines have been drawn very clearly, in, in so far, I mean, when uh, the president of Ukraine uh, signed this decree, basically tying himself, basically mm. blocking himself from entering into negotiations, that's like you burn the bridges behind you, right? To convince that you have absolutely no way of going further. But the readiness for negotiations on both sides, it will always be the same thing, will be determined by the situation on the battlefield. Mm, yeah, It will be determined by the situation on the battlefield. Um, I see the chance of it actually happening as rather low before the situation reaches a so-called mutually hurting stalemate. Mm, uh, mm, yeah, once yeah. you reach a mutually hurting stalemate, what decree was signed or what decree was not signed will not be the ultimate blockage for having negotiations. But that is, again, a little bit, let's say, um, presupposing a result. Nobody has banned shuttle diplomacy. Is shuttle diplomacy happening? Maybe a little bit by President Erdogan. Should there be more shuttle diplomacy? I'm convinced there should be more shuttle diplomacy, at least than what is being reported on at the moment. Because one mm. also needs to look a little bit beyond the hype that is sometimes created about how much is actually happening on the battlefield. 
despite the fact that the Ukrainian defense and all of what they're doing is defense, all Ukrainian defense efforts are remarkable, really remarkable, and honestly, no one would have expected that. They do not indicate that this war is over soon, that Ukrainian war aims are going to be reached soon. And I think when the big offensive around Kharkiv happened, and possibly what is upcoming in Kherson uh, at mm. the moment, may again reinforce this this a little bit, I think, careless deliberation that the war that the war is going to end soon. You know, by the spring or by the winter, mm. Ukraine will be liberated. The reality looks very different. The reality looks as if, without any process that leads to some kind of negotiated solution. And I'm not saying what that should be. It's not my right to say, to say what this should be. But without the process to have this solution, this war could go on for a very, very, very long time at horrendous, horrendous human cost. Over mm. all the successes on the battlefield, we should not forget that the GDP of Ukraine has gone down by 30 to 35% this year. This is not mm. a number that's somewhere on paper. That is a number that uh, indicates a tremendous increase of poverty. People living below $4 a day, that is expected to rise significantly. The winter, with energy infrastructure being severely damaged, and I don't know whether we have seen the end of that, will pose tremendous challenges to Ukraine, to Ukrainians living in the country. Mm. Whose fault is that? Well, the, the answer to this is very, very clear. It's President Putin and Russia's fault. Mm. Nevertheless, it is a reason to really think of, as I said, of this type of process that at some point will make it easier for sites to come together and agree something. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just confused about that statement, though. As in, it, it, it could be perceived as though there were victim shaming here, right? Because Ukraine is absolutely unequivocally the victim in this and victim in the sense that they're still still missing 15% or more of its land border or, or of its land mass uh, due to an illegal, unjust war started by President Putin. Now, when we're talking about the mutual hurting stalemate right now, I mean, Ukraine's absolutely got the upper hand. At least it seems that way on the battlefield. Uh, so it's Batna, right? So it's its best alternative to a negotiated agreement is perfectly fine. They are, in, in my, and, and well, not just my view, but in view of many, Ukraine has got the upper hand and it's, while it's getting the support from the West, yeah. in other words, it's it's being pumped with weapons while Russia is slowly depleting its weapons and also stupidly wasting its arsenal on striking civilian targets. Uh, complete, yeah, militarily useless targets. I just don't see why Ukraine would in any way even contemplate anything other than absolute withdrawal from you know the four annexed regions as well as Crimea. I just I just can't see why why they would back off. And I think they should not. I think that Ukraine hmm. should not back off the liberation hmm. of its territory as long as the situation on the ground remains uh, remains as it is. But hmm. I think we're on the right track here. We should at some mm -hmm. point have a conversation together, us the allies, together mm -hmm. with Ukraine, what mm -hmm. winning actually means. Because it is not clear that the liberation, I mean, 
we had uh, definitions of winning ranging from the liberation of Ukraine to the borders of the 23rd of February via the liberation of the Donbass, via the liberation of all of Ukraine's officially officially recognized territory, including Crimea, Mm -hmm. over plus the uh, resignation and prosecution in front of international war war crime of Putin and the entire Russian regime, plus Mm. the full reparations paid from uh, Mm -hmm. Russia to Ukraine, which is going to be in the hundreds and hundreds of millions Mm. of of dollars. Now, Mm. would this be fair? This would be fair, yes. The question is, at what price? What is the win? What is the win that Ukraine and the Allies are ready to accept as a win? I just want to tell you one thing. We're again mm-hmm. falling the trap of, the, of talking about outcomes. We're again yeah. talk, falling yeah. into the trap of talking about outcomes. And my prince, it is not to dictate to either side what should be the outcome. In essence, that is, that is a process that is either a process of negotiation or a process of absolute total military victory, which is something that I still think is far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when I speak of a process, I'm not speaking about something that is somehow theoretical or elusive. I'm thinking about something that already exists. I'm thinking of the fact that, and we tend to forget about that, even in the current situation, while Zelensky has forbidden himself to negotiate, while Russia says, Yes, we'll negotiate, but only after all our demands are fulfilled, which is basically also to say we're not negotiating. Mm. Military officers are sitting in one setting together and are discussing the solution to some of the problems brought about the war. Do you know where they're sitting together on a daily basis? They're sitting together in Istanbul. A Russian military delegation Mm. and a Ukrainian military delegation sit there permanently shackled to each other, discussing the export of grains from mm. uh, in the context of the Black Sea Grain Initiative by the United Nations. Now, mm. so far, this setting is very limited to discussing only this particular topic, the export mm. of grain. Mm. Is it said that this setting could not be a little bit embellished by other topics? For example, by the protection of civilians, for example, by the protection of nuclear power plants, for example, by attempting local ceasefires, for example, for harvesting, for example, for sowing grain. When you come to the, to the whole grain topic, I think all sides will have an interest that harvest can go on, that all sides will have an interest that sowing will be able to go on. So I'm just giving an example that existing settings could be embellished a little bit. You don't need to lay the foundation mm. for new settings. You have already mm. a granule of something right there. So when I speak about the process, the process could very much look like that Ukraine's allies, mediators, would encourage behind closed doors all the sides to find certain small areas where certain protection of civilians is 
possible and in both sides' interest mm. as a very as a very first step. Because as you rightly pointed out, when we think from the result and we say, okay, that should be a result, this side should get that, and that side should get that, and that should get everything or not everything, you are taking yourself out of the game about a useful mediation, about a yeah. useful uh, about a useful role in the process, because whatever result, you, whatever result, any outsider at this moment proclaims to be fair, he will immediately be rejected by at least one of the sides, if not by both, mm. as not being impartial. Therefore, being rejected. Yeah, no, and, and I can absolutely see that. Which is really why the only country that's even having that's having any kind of success is Turkey and, and Erdogan. Who, who's obviously facilitated, on behalf of the UN, if I'm correct, the letting out the grains uh, come through through the Russian blockade, but also, I think more than 200 soldiers exchanged prison exchange programs and so on. So I think Turkey's really trying to play the role of the mediator, uh, and I think again, uh, Putin and Erdogan are meeting later this week, yes. uh, where again it's uh, it, it's expected that Turkey will make an offer to Putin. And I guess this is kind of leads to my next question. Um, you know, all the things you mentioned, at least, and and I declare 100% that I'm undoubtedly biased. Uh, I'm, I'm aware of my own bias uh, because there's an emotional response to what uh, is happening in Ukraine as much as I'm trying to be as objective as I can in this. But everything you mentioned, like, for example, the civilian losses or targeting of civilians, uh, targeting of nuclear power plants, that strikes me as though that's by and large being done by Russia. Then, of course, we've got the annexation of the four regions against the advice of the and basically the entire world. Yeah. And then, of course, we saw in the UN, I think it's 140-odd member states voted in favor uh, of, of rejecting it, uh, and only five uh, voted uh, against. And, of yeah. course, those five you know, were effectively allies of, of Russia, the, the few that remain. So I guess my question is, how do we, how do we bring Russia to the table? Because I get the sense that Ukraine probably would be willing to come to the table uh, with some strong demands, given that it's in a, in, in a pretty advantageous position going forward. Uh, but how do we bring Russia to the table without the demands that Putin is making? I think Russia can only be brought to the table on the battlefield. Hmm. I think, as absurd as it sounds, the best way to come to some kind of negotiated solution is if Russia really understands that they cannot win this war and that they will not mm. win this war, at least in any way that is in any way consistent with the demands that they have made in the past. Right. And, um, and I guess that's the challenge, right? Because if Putin loses this war, <laughs> then Putin is, has lost. Yeah. Uh, and he loses a lot of his uh, potential tiny power. Comment. My tiny comment is with, as again, thinking from the end. We're again... Mm. <laughs> you see how extremely difficult. Yeah, yeah, it's so. Yeah, it's I agree. Process yeah. focused yeah. in this context, <laughs> and and it is very difficult not to immediately think about the end, because as we said before, the moment you think about the end, whoever thinks about the end publicly at least is out of the process of any type of mediation, because his neutrality or his goodwill will be questioned immediately. By at least one side. Mm. Mm. Okay. I think yeah. it was a good point to say. Um, so, how do we bring Russia to the table? And I, gave, I posited to you 
that the best way to bring Russia to the table will be to make very, very clear to it that a solution on the battlefield or a solution that is in any way consistent with anything that Russia has claimed it's, it's their war aim is simply not going to happen because Ukraine and the West are standing together and that will prevent exactly that outcome. Once mm. Russia understands that, I think its, its, um, its ability, its, its willingness to negotiate is going to grow. Yeah. Well, I think we're already seeing the willingness from the Russian side to come to the negotiating table, except uh, they're coming to the table with ends in mind. So I guess they're again failing for... Well, the sides can come to the table with ends in mind. I mean, what I have seen from the Russian position is basically we keep everything we have Hmm. and more, and then we Hmm. can come to the negotiation table. Which is not a serious. Uh, yeah, and, and, and Ukrainian neutrality, whatever that means now. Whatever that means now, uh, I think the Ukrainian neutrality might have been a viable idea 10 years ago or mm. even eight years ago. It's no longer a viable idea because Ukraine mm. simply does not believe anymore that this would be respected. Mm. That yeah, is, that's right. I think yeah. Ukraine has learned the hard way, the very, very hard way, that the only way that they can preserve their territorial, their nation, their status as a nation and their territorial integrity by being armed to the teeth themselves, plus being in a very strong Mm. alliance with someone who is willing to uh, back this up. But let me give Mm. you another Mm. process thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, please. Because that that was actually going to be my question uh, since, since... from my own perspective, I keep getting bogged down into the uh, ends in mind. Maybe we can actually, maybe you can explain the process. Yeah. You know what it would actually look like uh, in the in the various steps, because uh, I think that would help. Well, the process in the various steps, I think there could be two tracks. Uh, one track would be, let's say, the most modest track. The most modest track would mean trying to embellish little by little by little by little the already existing mechanism of the of the, mm-hmm. of the Black Sea Grain Initiative. I am nearly certain that there are certain topics which are in the interest of all the sides can be discussed there. Let us think about the exchange of prisoners. That's being done now also in a different process, but not between militaries, in a very discreet mm-hmm. process. Let us think about further exchange of prisoners. Let, let us uh, think about certain protection of certain infrastructure. For example, Zaporizhia power plant. But again, mm-hmm. the first, I think, step for that would be, okay, this does not require a ceasefire as a precondition. A ceasefire is, a, I would say, a, a goal that's still kind of remote, right? Mm-hmm. While mm-hmm. fighting is going on, this setting that we have there in Istanbul with militaries that do sit on occasions in the same room, that do talk to each other, could be embellished step by step by step by step with topics that are in the interest of both sides. So a first step for, let's say, shuttle diplomacy could be to establish, okay, what could that be? We would like to, we would like to give one, two, three more points to this Caspian, uh, to this uh, Black Sea initiative, to the negotiations mm-hmm. in Istanbul, potentially, potentially leading to an enlargement of this mix. The second step, and this is in the media more and more, is to deploy something like a UN mission, 
with a, a UN mission uh, on the ground. Now, I know that you come from uh, Bosnia and that you have probably extremely bad memories of anything that has to do with the UN in an active conflict zone. But let me also remind you that the UN, through this disaster that it has experienced mm. in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina in the early 1990s, has actually learned a lot. They have mm. Uh, mm. completely overhauled their uh, their methodology for peacekeeping or also peacemaking missions. They've mm. completely overhauled their methodologies. They've tried to learn from this disaster. So an, a limited UN mission, for example, and again, this is not unrealistic, a UN mission that is there to monitor the situation around the Saporizhia power plant. This mm. is something where they could monitor, they could report, they could give unbiased updates, something like this being uh, negotiated in, in Istanbul between the sides. I think the UN would stand ready to do that. Something like that could be a step. And then mm. once mm. we've established certain mechanisms, alone the establishment of certain mechanisms in a dire, dire, dire situation like this, already has a positive effect that actually could grow into something into something more. Mm. Mainly what I'm saying is the pursuit of peace for this by the international community, by anybody who would like to reduce the suffering, to end the suffering, to end the suffering of civilians, which is inflicted by Russia, I'm in agreement on that, has not reached its full potential. The Black Sea, the, the Black Sea Grain Initiative could be embellished with other topics. The UN could think about a role on the ground and the rest will be, as we said, dependent on the situation uh, on the battlefield. Once Ukraine has demonstrated sufficiently to the Russians that they will be able and will be willing to fight this until the end, although this may be a very long time, uh, once this is fully understood, I think the willingness of the sides to come to the table, which is the first step, which is not the first step, which is already the first result, yeah, mm. to, uh, uh, mm. may, 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 be, may be increasing. And I also want to, um, I want to talk about things that are sometimes a little bit muffled. At the moment, the question is, what is a win? What is a win for us, for the West, for Ukraine? The thing that is usually said is, this is Ukraine's decision alone. I believe this mm -hmm. is a decision which is taken between Ukraine and its partners mm -hmm. together in a, in a joint process. Because we share interests with Ukraine. We share, although to a much, much, much smaller degree, but we also share costs with Ukraine in our societies. We share the same vision for a European future for Ukraine, and we share the same uh, we share the same large neighbor, namely Russia, as Ukraine does. So I think decisions mm. on this conflict, uh, what constitutes a win, and when to go for this win, and when to enter into a negotiated process, should be decisions taken by Ukraine and its allies together. Mm. I, I, I wonder whether that might. Uh be a point that triggers some people because I think, and only going back to the point you made earlier, because you, you earlier you said that it should be up to Ukraine, notwithstanding the fact that it is through the support by the West that Ukraine is even in this fight 
uh, really or continues to be in this fight through the supply of, of well, ammunition, mean, economic yeah. support, etc., etc., etc. So, so can I just clarify what you mean? As in, what you're saying is that there needs to be a negotiation or an agreement between Ukraine and the supporting parties. Uh, as to how far and how long that support will go? Is that is that what you mean? What I'm saying is that there is an agreement on how mm. to conduct this war between uh, Ukraine and the West. I think that Ukraine mm. and the West are very closely talking about next steps. I think that Ukraine and the West is very clearly coordinating actions in the economic sphere, in the information sphere. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Made clear. Yeah. And I think that this joint decision-making should be there until the end of the war. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I'd be, I'd be surprised if it wasn't, because I think also Ukraine is aware that it's in its interest to keep the West in the loop as much as possible, because it's, uh, you know, the, it, the messaging is also that Ukraine is defending, is fighting so that the rest of Europe doesn't have to fight. <laughs> so, so in that instance, it's also in, in its interest to keep uh, Europe on side and therefore involve Europe or the West, yeah. broadly speaking, in its war efforts. But you did make a point that there was a really interesting about the um, about the UN mission, and I and I can sort of in my head see that as, as as much as I do acknowledge your point about Bosnia, and and I do acknowledge that the UN has moved on and learnt its lessons. What I can't really see is who would provide any of the troops or observers right now, because. The world is quite explicit, apart from some nations who, who are abstaining in the UN General Assembly. Uh, it's very clear that there aren't too many unbiased nations, or that could be seen as unbiased, that could actually go in. Um, well, when you look at the largest troop-contributing countries of UN missions, you will find that the largest troop-contributing countries are some African nations as well as uh, Bangladesh, mm. India, uh, Pakistan, etc. Now, while these nations, many of them have voted with, let's say, with the West, rightly so, in condemning Russia's illegal annexations, I do not think that military personnel from these countries, if it's African nations, if it's Bangladesh, mm -hmm. will be immediately seen as biased. I don't, I don't think mm. that's a very big thing. Are you aware whether these... This is an ongoing plan idea from the UN. I mean, is are you? Uh, I I have seen these proposals in the press increasingly. I do not see, and this is part of uh, what I part of a general point I want to make in assessing the situation. I think we are all on the same page. This is an absolutely illegal war of aggression by Russia waged against its neighbor in the context of which Russia is committing horrendous, horrendous war crimes. Yeah? And therefore, yeah. this be judged accordingly. Also, eventually, in some sort of transitional justice, uh, in some sort of traditional justice arrangement. But my view is that conversations like this one about how to eventually achieve peace should take a little bit more prominence over conversations with how to prolong the conflict, create more hatred, create more suffering, to create a much more difficult situation in the long term for millions and millions of people. And the mm. millions of people that are often also not being talked about so much is the suffering of the people in Eastern Ukraine in the actual conflict-affected regions. That is mm. uh, a population that has been 
suffering for eight years and which suffering has now skyrocketed once again. Mm. So get more to the view from the ground, more to how to end this tragedy for the civilians. Also, let's be honest, also how to end the, how to aid and, and mitigate the economic consequences of the war, which in Europe are very dire. Which mm. is nothing compared to the suffering of the Ukrainian people. But when you can't pay your gas bill and you have to have your apartment cold in the winter, that's also real. That's not a luxury mm. problem. Mm. Huh? What, what is your feel of Europe? Uh, and, and well, you're in Berlin at the moment, yeah. uh, in Germany in particular. What is your, what is your feel uh, at the moment about the sentiment towards the world generally by the, by the everyday person? But the public is very divided. I think everybody agrees that Russia is in the wrong and Ukraine is in the right. I mean, mm -hmm. apart from, you know, the lunatic fringes everywhere. Mm -hmm. But the public seems to be very divided on, and I will put this exactly in the way that I would not phrase this, but that's mm. whether to be for peace or for justice. Mm. Where to stand, mm. to stand, for okay. the, let's bring the peace as quickly as possible, whatever it takes. That's a slight minority position, but that's a minority position, but growing. Or fight this out until the end, whatever it takes, that is still a majority position, but shrinking. And I guess it's shrinking because of the added pressures that the war is causing, uh, both on the back pockets of, of everyday Europeans. It's, it's only uh, one aspect. You know. One aspect. Mm -hmm. There is, a, I would say, a, a amalgamation of things. I think the civilian suffering is in Ukraine is seen a lot. What is also seen here in Germany and in Austria, where I'm from, is the fear and the horrendous oppression that this war has brought about for the Russian people. Let's not forget about mm. that. Let's not forget about mobilization, people being dragged to their what they see as a certain grave and what others see as a certain grave, being dragged from the street. Uh, Russia, important neighbor here in Europe, Becoming from an, you know, from an autocratic system into a full on tyranny. Mm. So I think people are just seeing that so far things have not become better. They've not become really mm. better in Ukraine. Ukraine is more destroyed than it was three months ago. Um, Russia is in a worse state than it was three months ago. Europe is in a worse state than it was three months ago. And this, you have this on the one side. On the other side, you have the justice argument. If anything is just, then it is just to repel a full-on aggressor with whatever it takes. And that's the argument on the other side. Yeah. I mean, it, and again, as an ethnic Bosnian, I, I, and as someone who is as close to pacifism as one can be while wearing uniform, yeah. there, there, I have a natural emotional inclination to go with the latter. Uh, and that is the justice piece. As much as I'm really trying to force myself more towards the uh, let's let's explore alternatives to war, but I just cannot see. Uh, and again, this is perhaps because I'm falling for the trap of seeing an end in mind. And when I think about an end in mind about Bosnia, I see a Dayton peace agreement, which is basically a a ceasefire agreement that is standing nearly three decades yeah. uh, and has frozen a conflict to a point where, you know, even now Bosnia remains at the verge of violence again. And, and that is in many ways because of appeasement. And I just wonder whether, you know, there's a risk of sending the message that appeasement is back on the table 
uh, which I think, uh, and, and I just want to stress, that's not what you're saying, which is why, if I'm correct in understanding what you're saying, is that you're, you're alerting us to the fact that let's not talk about the end goal that's here, correct. but rather let the war go on as it's going on on the battlefield. No one is denying Ukraine their freedom to fight and defend. That's correct. And retake their land, as is their right. But I think what you're saying is let's start more holistically a parallel process that is going to open up and create, as tenuous as they might be, strands or, or, or threads of communication between the warring sides that can ultimately, and these are the tracks you're talking about, that can ultimately exist for the peace talks that are going to come at some point, either through uh, a victory of one or the other or a mutually hurting stalemate, so that we have something there that's ready to be used to blossom into a full negotiation of full peace talks yes. that can then be signed publicly. Yeah, sorry, go on. Yes, but I'm also saying that even while the fighting is going on, and this mm-hmm. yeah. these forums, mm-hmm that already exists for one topic that is in the mutual interest of both sides. Huh? So forget yeah. that. That this existing yeah. mechanism could take on more topics, if the sides agree, on having yeah. more topics discussed without discussing the overall goal, the overall end of the war. Because I think the, yeah. at the moment to discuss the end of the war and what could or should be a just solution, what should be a solution is counterproductive. Yeah, you're drawing yourself into one side or the other, Yeah, yeah. As, yeah. which as a negotiator, you can't be. Yeah, And, yeah, yeah. and, so, and the, the, this is one thing I'm saying. And the other thing is I'm saying, I think many more conversations like the ones we are having right now should be happening. Exploring mm. further what could diplomacy do. Mm. By all means, the military effort is valiant and is just... But diplomacy needs to accompany the military effort so that the military effort is ended as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're talking about the dime elements of power, diplomacy is the first one, right? Do you think that organizations like the, you know, Mardi Adisari's uh, Crisis Management Initiative or, or Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, those types of organizations, I mean, I'd be surprised if they weren't already... Mm-hmm. I guess, developing those relationships, as you said, yeah. right at the start, discreetly. Are you confident these things are already happening? Um, I am confident there are certain things happening behind the scenes, but I would be happy if a little bit more public support could come for initiatives like this. Yeah, yeah, and, and and that's what I wanted to double-click on because I'm trying to find a key message to take away from this because I agree with you that our social discourse around this war has very much focused on the military aspect yes. and we're forgetting that we should be, as much as it's hard to even say, we need to be talking to Russia. Uh, regardless of what's happening at the moment, we need to maintain communication flow between all the different sides and all different stakeholders to allow for a, a resolution to take place uh, uh, down the line, whatever that might look like. Look, you can already see in our conversation how hard it is to even think in this direction. Yeah. No, yeah. no path, there is no clear path to peace. There is no clear path to peace. There is no clear path at the moment I see for a military full victory 
of either side in the short term. Mm. I also don't mm. see any clear path to peace on any type of negotiation table because there is simply no negotiation as we speak, right? Mm. So at least the conversation should be focused on how to combine the military and the diplomatic effort with an emphasis on the diplomatic effort to bring about, and that is what I think everybody wants, a peace that is sustainable. Of course, yeah. Dayton, yeah. you say it, it was a, it was a, it, many people will say Dayton was a failure. Many people will say Dayton was a success. But I don't want to even invoke things like Dayton because then immediately you come to something like appeasement. Mm. But what we need is a conversation that's in essence about achieving a functioning European security architecture and not a conversation about pursuing as much military success as possible. Can I just pick up on that with yeah. the European security architecture? Yeah. It's a term that we hear a lot, but uh, but I'm a little bit confused by what that actually means. What does that involve? What What do we mean by European security architecture? The European security architecture means that every country in the boundaries of wider Europe is actually safe and secure militarily and actually also feels mm. that way. We had this for a long time in the past context. I think countries mm -hmm. were feeling sufficiently safe. Ukraine was feeling, I think, sufficiently safe, at least until 2014. The European Union mm -hmm. was feeling sufficiently safe, probably until 2022. Russia mm -hmm. was also not threatened or, or giving, giving big signs of feeling unsafe until the middle of the last decade. So to reestablish mm -hmm. a European security architecture where countries can actually feel safe uh, where they are should be the ultimate outcome of this uh, of this conflict mm. in the in the most positive outcome. Yeah, and again, uh, at the risk of uh, falling for the end in <laughs> for the end in mind, I think uh, many of my listeners would say, "Well, uh, you know, a a dissolved Russia or a Russia without a military uh, <laughs> will probably go a long way." But uh, that's uh, perhaps too cynical of me to say. But I think uh, I think on that note, I think. Um, uh, unless there are any other major points you'd like to make, I probably want to leave it here because yeah. I do want to keep this a yeah. short and sharp yes. uh, episode yes, yes. Uh, so that the message is not lost. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, thank you. I think I just wanted to express the need for having a wider conversation on the conflict than simply on military terms. Absolutely. I agree. And uh, and thank you once again, Wolfgang, for your time. I really do appreciate it. And I have no doubt we'll be talking once more at least uh, on this topic uh, and perhaps even other ones, uh, given uh, given your current work and uh, where you're traveling thank in the world. You. So thanks for taking the time and uh, I'll be in touch soon. Thank you, Buzz. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.